Hello, welcome to another edition of Hashtag Fully Book Meets. You're here with myself, Mace. Myself, French. Myself, Andrew. And today we're joined by another special guest. Goes by the name of Mecca. Yep. Let's clap him in, guys. <laughs> so, Mecca, we, we was having a conversation off air just before. Um, just a, a little, we, we kind of stepped into the realm of, of a facet of what you do. And mm-hmm. one of those things was... Um, you said to me that you're, do you mind if I say what you're teaching? That you're currently teaching at Wolfham Forest College. Yeah, correct. And the subject, your primary subject you teach is um, public service studies along with, is it some sports? Yes. Do you want to, so that's all I know about you at the moment. Poker, I know you know a little bit more about Mecca. For me and possibly for the viewers at home, I want to get a kind of glimpse into Mecca's world. Where, Where, like what you're about, where... Tell me about your childhood, your upbringing, and tell me about what's led you to the path where you're now teaching some of the youths of today. Okay. All right. Um, I guess starting from the beginning, I guess I I grew up in I grew up in Hackney. Yeah. And um, and during that period, sort of growing up in Hackney, it's you know what the ends are like in terms of it's like you're you're growing up in the mixture of different personalities, different people, and then there's a stage in life where everyone's path is starting to form. Mm-hmm. And then I remember going to the youth club and we all used to receive the same type of information in terms of you can achieve something like, you know, the youth workers were there to help us. Um, but not everyone took heed to those advice. Okay. Um, and I remember sort of some of the pinnacle points being in school, because I used to go to school in Bethnal Green and it was sort of predominantly sort of Bangladeshi Asian. Asian, yeah. And um, our school was synonymous and had a history of racial violence. When you say yeah, when you say racial violence, do you mean as in the Asians attacking other ethnics or people? He's mainly black, but so, it was like the rest of the world. But it was like the other side was mainly sort of blacks versus. Um, oh, it was like a almost like a running feud between yeah, the Asian, yeah, yeah. but like Beng- they call them Bengali or Bengali, Bengali yes, yeah, um, Bengalis and basically the Afro Caribbean yeah. uh, yeah. demographic. Exactly, and so uh, it was um, for me. It was weird because being in school, I felt like when we were involved, having to defend ourselves a lot of the time, yeah. um, I felt like I was fighting for a reason or was involved for a reason because it was, it's a racial thing. It's like, what do you mean because of my color of my skin? Like, you don't like me because we're in your area mm. type of thing. And so for me, I found a lot of issues with that. So then going back to the area, going back to the ends and then where the area are now in dispute with other areas, but the people they're fighting looked exactly like us. Yeah. Mm. So for me, right from a young age, that put me off. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I felt like all our parents were struggling for the same causes, probably working in the same hospitals, cleaning or dinner ladies or whatever it is. And so for me, my eyes kind of opened right from a young age. Um, and so that's what sort of totally put me off of that. So it's like, when I'm with my friends at the time, if there's a situation, it's like you, you know, your brothers, you back your friends. Of course. But one of the things... Nobody ever called my phone to go and actively go and do something. Okay. So your demographic of friends, was it a mixed bunch or was it just all Afro-Caribbean? Um, in school, it was it was mixed because mm. it pretty much got along with everyone. But in the area, it was pretty much predominantly sort of Afro-Caribbeans, mm-hmm. pretty much. And so um, that, was my, that was my stance. And the reason I kind of took that stance was, again, comparing the two situations being at school and being in the area um and i remember one of my mentors in school said to me you know what take a step back from all your friends and try and figure out what you want 
to how, do. How old were you at this stage? I was Rough, 16. Okay, so year 11. Yeah, year. pretty much year 11. Um, and he's advocated for us a lot, sort of during the sort of three, four years of sort of the peak violence in school. I think year nine was pre pretty much one of the worst times in school. We had police helicopters. It was really sort of bad during that period. Mm. So I remember he's, he, you know, he had a conversation with us where he set up this sort of um, black history, um, not month, but just black history throughout the academic year. But it was outside school hours because they wouldn't let him do it within school hours. And so during this period, he told us, go home, think about what you want to do and start thinking about your peer groups because you're at the age where friendships come and go between the age of 16 and 21 i'll, I'll never forget this it's like uh, the turnover of friends is, is is quite rapid you know so you leave your 11 and then all the people you've been friends with for five years you know you might be cool with another five or six of them going into college in college you make new friends from there you're only with them for two years and then you go into uni and uni you only have a handful of people that you leave so by the time that five years has come around if you're making decisions based on the people around you those decisions have may have huge consequences on your life mm. and i remember going home that day and i saw my mom she left for work i think about six o'clock in the morning and then she came back about half ten in the evening I was trying to do the maths. <laughs> how many how many hours is that? Yeah. So she had these two heavy bags and then I ran up to her and I took the bags off her and I remember what he said and then all I didn't know how, but all I was thinking to myself is that this is it. Like my purpose is to help retire this woman. Because mm -hmm. at that point it was sort of me, my younger brother and sort of my, my sort of baby brother who's pretty much about one or two at the time. And... And I remember the next day there was a situation in the area where it was pretty much we need to go to the other side and do something. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and the option was there for a lot of the people to to get involved. Mm. And um, it was literally making a decision at that point and saying, you know what, even just being around is not an option anymore. You know, and so it's like putting yourself out of the situation and saying, like I'm, I'm totally stepping away from even just being a peripheral person in these situations because it doesn't really make any more sense because I need to be there to uphold that pact I made for myself in regards to retiring my mum and being a positive influence from my brother. And so for me, that was, I guess, the start of having a more positive mindset sort of moving forward in regards to um, the impact I wanted to make just within my family at this point. And then in terms of trying to help others, eventually it came later on down the line. Mm -hmm. Did you want to, I saw you was about to ask something. <clears throat> no, I was just going to say, so yeah. would you say that that was a defining moment in yeah. terms of seeing your mum coming back from a long day yeah. with the bags, helping her? Yeah, it, to be honest, it's a day that happens on a regular basis, but it was more of what the mentor said yeah. okay. that day that kind of just hit home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it, you know, I see all the time or when she comes back, she's more probably shouting at us because we haven't emptied the bins or we haven't taken the chicken out of the freezer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So she, she can't cook. Have you ever had that? Yes, yeah, that. You know when yeah. you haven't tidied up or something? Mm. You can quickly do that. You remember mum's yeah. coming home and you, you, can't, you, can, you can't with the freezer the stuff. <laughs> you can't defrost <laughs> it. It's not a quick thing. Yeah. It's not a quick thing at all. So it's like she'll come back and she's always moaning about something. But on this occasion, like I made sure that we tidied the house, everything was sorted. And when she came back and I just saw that stress mm. on her face, everything just started clicking mm. from that point onwards. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple things that I wanted to raise. First off, I think that was at the age of 16, 
when you're saying you've got a group of friends who are, I'm sure you associate at that point of time as your brothers, mm. almost. Like, you're, you're from, I don't know, from a housing estate. Yeah. So, yeah. You're, like, I can imagine it's family. Yeah. And they're saying, we got to do something. Something's happened. we got to go there and retaliate. Mm. And we're, we're all, it's um, all for one, one for all kind of mentality. Mm. So that was a bold move, in my opinion, for you to say, and like, noble, bold, brave even, yeah. that at that age you had the mindset to say, do you know what? This isn't for me. I, I, I've realised today's, what's happened today with me speaking to someone who's quite a peripheral figure in my life at the moment, actually it's someone who actually cares about me at the school. Plus on top of that, just realised my mum does this every day for me and my brother. Is it one brother? I don't yeah, know. Two it's brothers at the time. Me, me and my two brothers, 6am, 10th I can't do the maths. I'm going to guess 14 hours, 16. <laughs> yeah, I can't do, I can't do the maths. <laughs> yeah. But for, for you to say that at 16 and say, do you know what? I'm not about that life anymore. It's almost like, because your friends, I'm being that age, I know your friends can drop you out like that. Mm. And it, it can almost make you feel like you're weak. Yeah. When in fact you're not, you're strong because actually you can stand on your own too. Yeah. So for me, that's a, that's a bold move. Well, the other thing I wanted to say was with the teacher who spoke to you about the 1621, you said about he almost had his own, as part outside the school curriculum, he had his own agenda where he wanted to, he kind of had like, like a black history um, course or something. Course yeah. of some sort, but kind of outside the curriculum. What, um, so that day, was it just a conversation? Was it in one of his classes where he'd done outside the lesson? It was, it was one of his, it was one of his sessions outside. Sessions. Of, yeah, yeah, in terms of, um, where we had to go see him outside of, like, when schools was done, pretty yeah. much 3.15. Yeah. Go to Mr. Richards. Yeah. Um, and just listen in terms of, like, book recommendations and stuff like Sick. that. Um, it was, it was powerful. It was powerful because it's, you start to appreciate what's happened before. Right. Because we're all living in the moment, not really respecting the actions the of the people in the past. Us, yeah. You know? Important. You know, and so for me, those were powerful things. Even sort of going back to my own sort of personal history within sort of where I'm from in Nigeria. Mm. I started asking my parents, my dad, a lot of questions about about the war, this war that, you know, you know, that the civil war that sort of blighted Nigeria in, in the sixties and starting to learn more about sort of my culture. So the more I learned about these things, the more it grew my ambition. Mm, sense of pride. Yeah. yeah. You know, finding out my dad only had a level of education up until primary school because of all the people that died around him, he was then put into, um, they called him a houseboy. Mm. He's sent to a rich family and you just go and serve them. And then all of a sudden your education is not important anymore um, because all these people around him have passed away. So having to deal with all that kind of trauma from a young age and being educated to this point, having made something for himself, set up his own businesses, eventually going to Lagos, learning a trade, making money, eventually sort of bringing the family here. Mm. So I'm thinking you did that with limited resources. What excuses what do I have? Mm -hmm. You know, in regards to when I hear a lot of young people in the end say, oh, there's nothing out here for us. There's nothing out here for us. And I'm like, there is stuff out there, but it's your mindset is not ready to seize the opportunities. Yeah. You know, and so these these are some of the problems that I used to face in regards to when I eventually started working with young people and understanding there has to be a shift of mindset. There has yeah. to be a shift of finding a purpose because once I present an opportunity for you, the opportunities that are on the roads are something that you're more interested in because it has instant gratification. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants instant gratification, even us as adults, but in our way, it comes through things like credit and loans. You can't afford that thing yet, so you get the credit because you want it now. Young people don't have credit balance in the history yet. So for them, that two grand that you're talking about that you can earn 
in the next two, three months as an 18, 19 year old working on, you know, lower sort of income, it can, somebody can promise that to them in, in a week mm. type of thing. And so those options were there for me as well. And I remember one of my first jobs was working as a sales assistant in a, in a decorating shop. And I was working, I'm making about £3.52 per hour. We've been there, bro. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Some of us still there. You know? But I think for me, it was it was always about having that mindset and knowing that I never wanted to give, I guess, police a reason to lock me up. <clears throat> because again, going back to that pact that I made for myself. So it was like, you know what? If I wanted those Pradas that cost £160, you know, being 16, that's a lot of money. Do you mm. know what I mean? I know I need to work this amount of weekends <laughs> to be able to afford it mm. type of thing. And so that was, but not everyone thought like that. And I don't blame people who wanted that instant, but it was all about different points of that click. Yeah. And for me, it came at that point and everyone has come at a different point. You yeah. mentioned um, you got recommended books from early on. Yeah. What kind of books was going? Was you getting recommended to? Um, One of the ones that I remember was the philosophies and opinions of marcus garvey okay yeah i've read that was there um there's another book called brainwash by tom burrell mm -hmm. um which is another important book and um sort of sort of the poems of maya angelou okay so all these things and then looking at again sort of like the history of biafra the civil war in nigeria and so i started sort of researching all these little things and so um started looking at those things and starts making me wonder it's like wow what else is out there mm -hmm. and then Nelson Mandela's story obviously everybody's kind of paid attention in history class you know about apartheid and stuff like that but do you really know about it beyond what's in the curriculum do you know mm -hmm. what I mean because everything's filtered in education to a certain degree it's not until you decide to educate yourself in, in a way that's not filtered then you start to you know question things mm -hmm. a lot more and so that's that then became my journey so these sort of key books then sort of led me to, okay, what's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? And that's how it just sort of kicked off. So did Mr. Richards plant the seed for you, would you say? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And what, um, I'm not sure if you've had the conversation with me, but what inspired him? What motivated him to work beyond his hours and, and not go home and say, do you know what? That's I've done good, what's on the curriculum. That's a good question that I wish I could ask him if I still had contact with him because yeah. it's not a question that me as a 16-year-old would ask at the time. Yeah, of course. You know, you're constantly thinking about yourself. And then he's thinking about you. So you're you're just taking the information and you're starting to to see. Because I remember one period I was going to be kicked out of school. Okay. Um, for not even being involved in the conflict because you're seen as an influencer. Mm. So there was a big, uh, again, scrap with some of the guys and some of the Asian guys. And sort of the deputy head wanted to sort of kick me out for being an influencer. And I'm like... Was you he innocent or guilty at that time? I wasn't even in school. Okay. But what he was saying is that that I'm, my name's always brought up because, for instance, if one of my friends, somebody calls him the N-word, for instance, mm. I'm not just going to let him stand there and take that. I would challenge the person mm -hmm. who, who said that to him. I'm like, you can't do that. You can't walk around thinking you can get away with that because we're in your area. Mm. So because I used to challenge that, a lot of the times, it's like a lot of the heat would come towards me. So I couldn't go into Brick Lane for about three years. Wow. Brooklyn Massive and all of these things and stuff like that because like my, my brother couldn't go to my school. When my mom was saying, where's your brother going to go? I was like, yeah, he definitely can't go to Bethany Green because I was able to stand up for myself and stand up for other people as well. And so that, that was that was that pretty much. Mm. Yeah. So I guess um, after you turn 16 and you've you now got this concept of you're going to step away from that, I guess, lifestyle, so mm. to speak, what was your next steps? 
Um, it was being in college. I remember being in college and I wanted to keep a low profile. Mm. In college, I, I didn't want to make new friends. I just want to just go in there, do my two years and just go to uni outside of London. And um, I was playing football at the time myself, a decent level. I got injured, opportunity to do my coaching badges. Did my coaching um, FA level one and two. Um, and then opportunity to coach under 16s in the area. And mm. I was pretty much only like two years older than them at the time. And so like football then became a part of the tool of helping. And that was my entry point in terms of helping young people. Mm. So it's no longer about myself now. It's like, okay, how can I sort of contribute to making what's happening in and around us better? So football was a tool that I then used to sort of bring different areas that were having sort of different squabbles together within the ends and just, let's just kick ball, mm. you know, organize the training, had the matches and stuff like that. And so, you know, I was doing that for about a year and a half, you know, and so it gave me a sense of purpose within like having that, being that figure within the area now in a more positive light, mm. you know, and so... And that was the next step for me, being mm. able to do that and having something tangible to say, you know what, it's not just about me. It's like, this is about how we can learn from each other, mm. you know? And so I was learning from them and they were learning from me. I got one of my boys involved. He became the assistant coach and stuff like that. And then, you know, he was getting paid. He did his FA badges as well. And so it was just like a community thing. And so it was like something that was seen in the area as something positive. Mm. And was you still reading at the same time, like reading different books? Was yeah, you, yeah, yeah I, I was still reading. Um, not as much as I would like to. Obviously, it's like you're constantly surrounded by distractions, like, mm, of course. you know, girls and all these other things. Still, I'm still, yeah, still yeah, 17, still, 18 yeah, still at this point, yeah. you know, but it's still a consciousness that's there in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like having this and going to college um, was enough in regards to what do they say uh, the devil makes work for idle hands yeah, yeah. type of thing and yeah, yeah, yeah. so for me <laughs> yeah so for me that was a powerful thing that kept me going and knowing that the stuff in the ends never goes away like there's yeah. always drama there's yeah. always you know and then and then came out that there was a situation with my area and the, where I went to college you know and so it's now in the back of my head it's like I hope for my sake that nobody tells them that I'm from that area. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't want no, I don't want no trouble mm. like that. So those, those sort of times was your, was you still, you see, you said you separated from your friend from school. Yeah. But you would have been, I guess, somewhat known in your area. Yeah. And you was going to college. Was there people that were still from your area that was going locally or did you still have that connection, so to speak? Yeah, like so, people. yeah, like, it again, it's it's like, it's not really shotting people off in regards to, like, you don't say hello to yeah. them anymore or anything like that. It's like, it's like comparing it to, to sort of the American system where it's just like blood in, blood out. It's like, you're in, you're not going anywhere now. It's like, the ends weren't really like that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, there was more of a choice of what you decided to do yeah, if you wanted to be involved type of thing. And so there was different layers of friendship within the area. It's like, <laughs> I found that rather than just trying to cut people off, it was like, can I share what Mr. Richard shared with me to the guys in the area? Mm. And so those people that listened to what I was saying, we were able to then just start having our own conversations. And it was okay, there's a lot more like-minded people in the ends that nobody, not everyone is wants to shot, not everybody wants to bang for the for the area mm -hmm. type of thing like that. So there were a lot of people that have aspirations in business, even from a young age, mm -hmm. you know. And so it's like, okay, how do we kind of stay together? And then that became 
um, the friendship group. Okay. And it sort of, sort of starts to sort of drift away. And then the rest, it then becomes that thing. I remember a comedian used to say this joke in terms of sort of different friendships. It's like one year, it's like you see each other, you give yourself the man hug, or you saying, bruv? The following year, you know, you might give them a spud. The following year, you'll cross the street, you might give them the nod. Mm. And then the following year, it's like just pretending you can't see each other. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's just long. Let's just, yeah. let's forget the small talk. It's just long. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Everyone's doing their thing. And so that's how it literally just happened in the area. And then it's just eventually everyone kind of drifted off within whatever circles of interest that they had. And that was it really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to touch back. How many people were in that class and the, um, let's call it Afro studies? Um, there was seven of us. Seven. And he only lasted about four weeks before they said... We had something like that in our school. The room school, was unavailable anymore. But it was it was more the provision of the school. So okay. it wasn't like an individual teacher. Yeah. They actually brought some people in and yeah. said, oh, kind of gather up all the black kids. Yeah. The black boys, should I say, and kind of sit down and do similar things and talk about history. And, yeah. Yeah, be proud of yourself. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's you know, it's if the school had that, then you know that's a good initiative for for them. Mm. Um, whereas Mr. Richard put pull it upon himself to say, you know what, I see, you know, I see these guys, and this is what they need, mm. you know. And then he was onto something way back when. Sorry, I was going to ask, how old is he? Not that I know him because I want to touch on something based on my own experience. I think he was probably under thirty. Under thirty. Yeah. He's a young, he was a young guy. He wasn't like, so for instance, there was two influential black guys in my school, Mr. Tucker, who was the biology, biology teacher who was from the Caribbean. Mm. He used to walk around with a meter, uh, meter ruler stick. <laughs> if you were the baddest, if you were the baddest person in the school, you were best behaved in his class. Nobody, there was no behavior issues in his class. Mm. He made grown <laughs> boys cry when he put it on you to answer a question. Mm. Questions that you probably know the answer to. <laughs> so <you laughs> but in such pressure, a way. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And because of him, I probably passed my GCSEs because of the pressure. He made some of our parents sign contracts to keep us after school. Mm. I remember we were playing football, one of my friends, Shane, he just came out, dragged him by his hood. Said your mom signed a contract. Yo, come back, come inside. You've got work yeah. to do, bro. <laughs> I never forget that day. And you I always remind them. You play for me. <laughs> so yeah, Mister uh, Mister Tucker was well into his. He was probably in his forties at that time. Okay. Um, but Mister Richards was definitely. He was one of them young, young, young sort of energy guys within yeah. within the school. So he, I don't think he was post thirty at all. To be honest. The reason why I say that, and it's probably I don't want to say it's slight on myself, but maybe it might have been where I was in life at the time. Um, when I was working, I don't care. What, I don't want to say the score. Actually, when I was working in a secondary school, um, I got to a point where I became frustrated with maybe how things were done in the school and the effects I was maybe having on children. Yeah. To the point where I had other plans anyway, but I made a decision. I've come to the end of, I've come to the end of the road of my at my time at the school and made a decision to leave. Whereas obviously you've got teachers also like Mr. Richards who made a decision. Actually, there's a lot going on in this school. Um, due to conflicts and so on and so forth, I want to put together a program, and it just made me think to myself, what level of maturity was he at? Yeah. As to why he wanted to put a program together, yeah. maybe I just weren't mature. Who knows? Yeah. So yeah, I think he he just had that. He probably saw how we were being treated within the school, as well, and just feeling like you know what, you know, it's I guess it's it's made me the type of teacher that I want to be as yeah. well in terms of how I want to influence and make sure that young people reach their full potential, and so mm-hmm. it's like what do they say? Like, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is what you've learned from different parts of life yeah. that you're able to kind of share. So, like I always say, one of the most selfish things we can do as adults is uh, not share your life experiences, mm-hmm. you know? And so there are many young people who are making the same mistakes. 
that we've made or people that we know have made. And there's nothing worse than just being quiet about it because a lot of people just have this feeling of uh, it's inevitable, the young people don't listen anyway and stuff like that. When I can't really subscribe to that because it's how you portray that message could be different from the other person who said it, but they didn't listen. So you might say it in a different way that might spark something in them type of thing. And I always say this when I give my sort of public speaking talks to young people, I could be speaking to a room full of a hundred people looking at body language, seeing as, you know, maybe 60% are not really interested. Another 20 might be semi-interested. And throughout that talk, maybe five people have taken something from it. But then like Tupac said, I might not be the person that changes the world, but I'm going to spark the person that does it. So if what I've said is now had an influence of somebody might be a leader within that group, mm he or she can then spread that message within their peer group. Mm-hmm. And then it's the same message, but it's coming from them. So it doesn't have to be about me. It doesn't have to be about you, but I know that at least it's been said. Mm-hmm. If it hasn't been said, then that's the problem. Okay, and there was two things I was going to say. So um, with those percentages, and I'm sure obviously you're gauging body language or mm-hmm. you are gauging body language, are you generally quite comfortable? Maybe like, are you comfortable speaking on stage knowing that, let's say two thirds of the room, I'm, I'm not listening or or are not fully engaged, but you know th- there might be two or three who you can see are actually focusing on you and are taking the message on board. I find it, it's a challenge for me. Um, might be an exciting challenge, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting challenge because I remember my first public speaking gig was after the riots, just after my Tot- first book. Tottenham? No. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 the Tottenham yeah, of yeah. Mark Duggan. Yeah. And um, when the sort of dust settled, all the professionals and academics and media were trying to dissect what had happened Mm -hmm. and then I remember sort of Birmingham City University invited me down to give a talk Um, Mm -hmm. and I remember I walked into the auditorium and there was like 400 people in there I was like yo I'm used to speaking to like (laughs) I'm used to speaking to like 15 people like young people at that and I walked in and then he goes, yeah, you'll be on in about 15 minutes. Okay. You better sort yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> that would be me. Remember I said I was speaking to myself yesterday in Spanish. And you better sort yourself out. you got 15 minutes. I was like, okay, I can either go back out and kind of gather myself. I've yeah. done all my prep already, but gather myself. But I was like, you know what? Let me watch the last person that's speaking and see how they engage the crowd <clears throat> and stuff like that. And yeah. stuff like that. And just look at the crowd and see the crowd. And then that, and that just gave me a, li- a little bit more peace in regards okay. to how to approach it. And then I found out that you always have that sense of being nervous before you go on. But as soon as I'm on there... Yeah, you're comfortable. Because I'm talking about an area that is important to me, yeah. that I'm passionate I'm about, and that, that comes out. Yeah. So going back to your question, when I'm speaking to especially young people, what I find harder is if I'm brought in to be like a one-time speaker, as in there's no emotional connection to me. I'm just another guy. I don't know where they've dragged him out to to just come and listen to this guy speak. I've already come into the mindset knowing that they're not interested. Who are you? Nobody cares. That's my mindset straight. So I'm like, how do I plan this? this is how I plan my lessons. I don't teach the conventional way, stand there, lecture. My things are engaging and making sure that everyone's involved. So my speeches are set up in the same way. I'm engaging every single person in that room. Eye contact, questions, feedback to me. And just, it's like, let me make sure I get as many people sitting up, having that body language, being engaged as possible. And so that takes preparation. So in regards to what you were saying, um, 
the numbers are low for me personally in terms of seeing negative body language because it's like the teachers will always say to me, it's like normally even getting them to listen, it's already difficult. Whereas when I'm speaking, there's like you can hear a pin drop because they're engaged. It's like that's a good sign that they're, they're tuned into what you're saying. And so it's finding ways of speaking to them in ways that they can understand that can touch them. And so it's, you know, it's come with trial and error, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, certain places you go and it's like, wow, that went badly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? In terms of it's like, well, okay, like <coughs> these, these guys come from a different, they cut from a different cloth. It's like I've spoken in places where in a, in a youth club, just full of guys that I'll say like are in too deep. Mm, yeah. Do you know what I mean? As in like, like proper in too deep. And so it's like, I remember this being literally a car crash in terms of I just started talking, this guy's phone went off and nobody's interested. And what makes it worse, the youth workers couldn't control them either. So there's nothing more I can say. Mm. So again, that was a learning curve in terms of I need to go in and adapt to the crowd. The environment. It's not just about what I planned at home. Yeah. Spot you on. know, it's about, okay, I'm here now. Knowing the audience. Yeah, and seeing the audience. Mm. Like like sometimes I've like now, yeah, mm. yeah, I go in and I'll look at the audience. I'm like, scrap that. I'm going with that. I'm starting with that first. Yeah. Or I need to say this punchline first or mm. give them the statistics. Bang, got their attention mm. type of thing. All these slow buildups to certain crowds won't work. Do you know what I mean? And so these are the things that I've learned sort of over the years and the more I speak and stuff like that. Yeah. You said something about... Um... Sorry, no, it is. He said so many stuff. I've got about like, three things I want to ask. <laughs> okay, All cool. of us yeah, took, cool. a, took a gasp <laughs> to ask something. Yeah, go on. Oh, cool. um, <laughs> sorry, so you said um, something in regards to people, like, it's kind of like selfish in regards to people not wanting to share their story. Yeah. Um, why would you say people are not comfortable sharing their story or don't want to share their story? Because you've taken it upon yourself to not only share your story, share your story but at the same time, you seem, seem very motivated to share your story. Yeah, I guess different reasons really, because um, I used to, my, my grandma said this quote um, and I've translated it and I remember Immortal Technique, the rapper um, from Harlem has something similar, but she says it in our, in our native language, which is no one person can do everything, but everyone can do something. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I remember listening to the track, the Immortal Technique said it in as well. And then I was like, wow, I remember grandma said that. And then for me, it was powerful because it was all about everyone eventually becomes busy with their own life. Mm -hmm. And it takes them away from some of the, the root causes of some of the issues that's currently happening in places that they've grown up. And so for me, it's like, not everyone can give the currency of time or the or, or financial currency or whatever, but there is something that everyone can do. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's, okay, I can mentor this person once every month or whatever it is. Um, there's always a way to give back, even if it's not in a youth club, even if it's within your own family, like your nieces, your, your nephews mm -hmm. who are now 16, 17, you know, all of these critical ages, yeah. you know, it's like the amount of prayers that I used to have between when my brother turned 13 to dropping him off at uni uh, two weeks ago. Um, I used to be on him like white on rice because there are certain things that he would tell my mum and then I'll ask my mum, where is he? And then she would tell me the lie that he told her. And I'm like, come on, man. Mm. You know, you <laughs> Generations know, you of lies. Told those lies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like True that's lies. weak. <laughs> that's weak. <laughs> you know, and so it, it's like, I'll call him up and then, it, and then he's waffling. And then obviously we've got technology now. Send me your location, bro. Yeah. 
send me your location. And he goes, you know, I'm actually not. I'm like, send me location. Not in, I'm in West London. He goes, no, not in the university. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, you're out of the city. Like these mm. little things, little things like that. But it's trying to then make sure that he's on the right track as well and all of that type of stuff. So it's, um, yeah, man, it's... <laughs> that's true. So yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a big quote from your from your grandma, man. Yeah. And I fully, fully, fully believe in every word she said there. Yeah. So I'm not going to lie. When you you spoke a couple of minutes ago <clears throat> and there were so many things that popped up in my head. Mm-hmm. So we got to the age of about 18 and I feel like we've jumped now where you're now doing public speaking and being invited because not everyone gets invited to speak at Birmingham. Birmingham never contacted me to speak. Mm. Yeah. You're now doing, you, you mentioned that you're doing um, your work, your teaching. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something about a first book, which, yeah. believes, which makes me believe you've got more than one. Yeah. How, so I, I need to know the journey for my simple, for, my, for me, I'm a simple person. Yeah. I need to know the journey. So from 18 to the age you are now, what's that journey been like? And I don't know, French, if you had something that was... I was going to... More or less yeah. pose the same question because you said you've you mentioned teaching, you mentioned yeah. speaking. So I was just going to yeah. ask how, where, how did that fall into and, place? Yeah, how it all fell into place. Yeah, so pretty much like eventually after college, obviously getting into university, um, for me it was always about stuff that I was good at at the time and computers. I was good at computers. So yeah. it's like, okay, football is not going to work out because of this injury, you know, from a Nigerian household, you can't just go to work. You have to go and, you know, get a, a degree. And so mm. that's what I went to do. But then I fell out of love with computer science mm-hmm. after mid the first year. Um, Did you but, move away from the area for uni? Yeah, so yeah I was you in Luton. Said you wanted to get away. Yeah, yeah, I was in Luton, okay. uh, Bedfordshire. Yeah. Um, so fell out of love with that course, um, but I just kind of stuck through it. But then by the end of the second year, I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I moved back to the area, um, kind of now searching, okay, what do I actually want to do? How was that, by the way, you saying you no longer go in uni in your household? Um, as you can imagine, it wasn't, it didn't go down too well. Um, but I guess my mom and my dad was more about find what you want to do, um, and, and get, get there straight, you know, get there as quickly as possible, basically get back on the track. Um, and I remember going back to the youth club and I remember Janet, who's like a second mom to me. Um, she's like, oh, do you want to just volunteer for a few weeks? Okay. Um, and I remember going in there and seeing all these young people that were like 13 when I left for uni. Mm-hmm. Now 16, a lot of them taller than me and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so being there, I think after the first week and I was like, wow, there's a negative cycle here. Hearing the conversations, I remember these conversations and I remember the outcome of these conversations. And those outcomes were people dying. Where's the youth club, by the way? Is it on your estate? Is it? Yeah, on the estate in okay. the area in Hackney. Okay. Um, and I remember people dying, people going to prison. So I'm thinking like, what, what action is t- being taken here? So these, <laughs> these young ones don't make those mistakes. Cause three years ago, they were innocent, just in a cage playing football. Mm. But now this is the conversation has drastically changed. And I remember hearing that and I was like, I can do something. And so, and she's like, okay, do you want to sort of do your sort of youth work badges and stuff like that? So I started studying doing that and I started engaging with those young people. And so Gradually, I started feeling like I can then be that Mr. Richards mm-hmm. yeah. influence type of guy. I've had the experience with football and obviously went to uni and that stopped and now I'm back. And then it's drawing me back to youth work again. It's like working with younger people. And and then that's how it just kind of just started. And it was just taking away one of the evenings that they had, which was more about social, you know, how it is in a youth club, playing table tennis and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've incorporated... One of the one of the sessions, which was all about debates, 
and how we can then sort of help each other progress. And I didn't know how people were going to take that because I've taken away table tennis, I've taken away their pool table, I've taken away the PlayStation. I'm like, this session... Took away table tennis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just a mad... And I love table tennis. That's drastic, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it's only for one day out of the four, you know? So just on a Wednesday, this is what we're doing, this workshop. Like, those who are interested will come. And funny enough, more people came to that than normal sessions. Okay. After a while, people were talking about it. Mm. And it was not just me talking to them, it was just a discussion amongst all of us and everyone's just having these discussions and then within that it, we were talking about history we we're talking about um broken homes how that affects us because all these things come with trauma mm. that nobody sort of talks about in terms mm. of mental health within our community we're talking about um uh peer pressure stereotypes um how these stereotypes are placed upon us and how they've consumed us within our community even worse than sometimes outsiders. And one of the examples that I used to give young people at the time would be um, the classic one. If you see a white woman walking towards you late in the evening and she crosses the road, how do you feel? Oh man, come on, she's racist, bro. Like, what's that? What's that about? What's that about? <laughs> okay, fair enough. A lot of people react like that. I'm like, okay, same street, same time. This time there's three of you guys walking. But instead of seeing a white woman, you see 10 black guys that you don't recognize walking towards you. How do you react? One of them said, um, bruv, we pattern up. <laughs> just, like, just get ready for yeah. whatever's gonna happen. Yeah. Other one said, bruv, like, let's take divert, go a different route. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Other one's like, just don't make no eye contact. And I'm like, what's the difference between what you said and what the white women did? Because there's already a negative connotations that they're going to do something to you. Oh. <laughs> the, penny, the penny dropped. The penny dropped. Yeah. And I'm like, so. Why do you see yourself as a threat? Why do you see people that look like you as a threat? Mm. So it's just one of you and she saw you as a threat. So you're doing the exact same thing. So these are the type of discussions. And so we will have a whole session on this and how we now change that mindset because, oh, you know what? They could be just a random guys going to football. Do you know what I mean? But because we don't know them, it's already this defense mechanism has come up, whether you're scared or whether you're ready to fight. Mm. Either way, it's negative, no? Yeah, it's a negative narrative. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so um, so those were the kind of things. Social inequality was another thing that came up in regards to what we used to talk about in regards to um, sort of different areas. Why don't we hear about these things in Richmond or Chiswick and all of these other places? Why are they in specific <laughs> demographic, <laughs> geographical areas? Um, and so these were the center of conversations. And I guess in regards to fast forward into how that eventually became um, writing that to become a book, um, one of the young ladies who helped me set up this workshops, uh, tragically, she lost her life. 2010, April 16th, I'll never forget the date. She was in a chicken shop with some friends and um, some other guys from different area came into the area and then shot. Hoxton? Yeah, Hoxton. I remember yeah. this. And Agnes? Then and, yeah, Agnes. Yeah. And then she took a bullet to the neck. Okay. Um, and she held on for two days and she died the following day. Um, so that was hard for yeah. the area. Yeah. Hard for people in general. Um, even one of my teaching assistants at, in my college now, she's new. I remember she said she's about 25, 26. Agnes would have been sort of that age right now. Mm. And then she used to go to school EGA in, in Angel. And then she said that that shook the school because being girls that same age, mm. it's like, like we're supposed to be far removed from yeah, that, yeah, whereas yeah. we can become victims as well. So that was just hard in terms of trying to get over that. And then it was like, okay, once you're able to sort of recover a little bit, it's like the message can't stop. It can't just be here anymore. Mm. It can't just be in our youth club. 
And then the only vehicle that I had at the time was being able to write. I was not, I'm not a comedian. I'm not a rapper. I did poetry, but like rap is rhythm and poetry, but I didn't have the rhythm part. So I wasn't going to force it to try and be a rapper. It's just, but I could write creatively. And so I was like, okay, everything that we spoke about in these workshops eventually became a chapter in my first book, which was called Consequences, Breaking the Negative Cycle. Mm. And I called it Consequences because of that, action or thinking before you act is removed from a lot of people and so I remember different situations like we spoke about earlier in my life that I had to think of the consequences like this is a lose-lose situation if I go on this move like it doesn't make any sense who loses out what's the consequences that ambition I left for myself for my mum my brother goes out of the window but all of these things are flashing in my head very quickly. Sometimes you've got a split second to make a decision. A lot of people make these decisions based on fear. I don't want to be called moist. I don't want to be called a pussy. I don't want... Sorry if I saw... No, no you're fine. <laughs> um, all of these things. And then... This ain't BBC fans. Yeah. <laughs> it gets people in <laughs> no, trouble. No, come here. You know? <laughs> it's what gets people in trouble. Yeah. Even... Uh, you know, it's like... I remember my first points to driving was because I was doing someone a favour. Mm. Oh. Do you know what I mean? So imagine being in prison because you you was doing something you you know didn't really want to do because you're trying to help somebody yeah, else yeah. or whatever That's, else the situation is. to be is. the case. A lot you of know? people end up in jail because exactly. they're doing a favour you know? for someone. Yeah. And so these, these are the consequences that I thought about and I was like, okay, the subtitle needs to be my first thought walking into this youth club as a volunteer. And I was like, this is a negative cycle. So it's like, let's break in the negative cycle. became the sub the subtitle to so, it. You, got, you haven't got that book with you, have you? So no, no, that one, yeah. I don't have that one with me. Sold out. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. so yeah, I was I was 24 when I wrote that and yeah. pretty much. Just say it again, just so I want everyone to, to be aware of this. What's it called? Consequences, we'll breaking the negative side. We'll put that in the yeah. and, um, and so yeah, that came out and then a few weeks later, the riots happened. Okay. And so, um, and then obviously it's now, once the dust settled, everybody's trying to dissect. And so, because that became... Um, something to talk about. My PR person was really good at the time. He got me an article in The Guardian. Um, quite a few high-profile people read the book and gave me some nice reviews, Wicked. like David Lammy. Oh, Wicked, yeah. yeah um, Meg Hillier, Lammy, yeah. my own MP at the time. Yeah. So they, you know, they were able to support, which kind of put me in the spotlight a little bit in regards to people wanted to hear my opinions on certain things. And that's how the public speaking started from that. Holloway Women's Prison, this prison, that prison, this youth club, and all of these things. And then it's like, I just fell in love with speaking. It became like a drug. It's like, every time I came off stage, it's like, when's the next one? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, like a boxer. Yeah, it's, it just, it's it was just, it's just that, that's just that feeling. Like, I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but once you've come up, I don't know, probably artists and performers will be able to identify with okay. that mm -hmm. same rush, adrenaline or whatever it might be called. Um, and yeah, just kind of fell in love with that. But then, so my next book came about during writing my first book. I was writing this book and I had my my daughter at the time while I was writing my first book. Mm -hmm. I pretty much wrote this book in the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 p.m. For three months. 4 a.m., sorry, yeah. for three months. And it was a routine between me and my daughter. She was probably about six months at the time. Yes. She would wake up, yeah. I'll feed her, and then I'll write something and then it will click to me and I'll put her back to bed. And then I remember at this point, these two words came to me, ambitions and deprivation. Didn't really know what it meant at the time, but I put it together and it was like ambitions of the deprived. And I locked it down and I put it in my safe. Didn't know what it meant. Mm. And that was it. So that was for about three years. And then 
2014, I was like, I need, I want to write again, but I don't know what. I, I've said everything I needed to say in the first book. I'm not just going to write another book for the sake of it. But then I was like, I remember I can tell stories. So now I don't have to speak from a non-fiction perspective of just like a bunch of essays. Now I can create my own narrative. And the narrative that I used to see on TV a lot was the narrative of painting us as drug dealers. Mm -hmm. Paint, like, all the negative stereotypes that mm. already exist. So I'm like, how do I change this narrative? And I'm like, what about the stories of all these other young people, the vast majority that live on these estates mm -hmm. that have ambitions, that want to do something, but can still be affected by the issues of what has been told in the mainstream. Yeah. And so that's when I wrote, going back to that title and I was like, that became the title of the book. It was called Ambitions of the Deprived. And it became a story of four friends who made a pact to help each other succeed no matter what. And then when one of them gets caught in a sort of joint enterprise murder, mm. just being there, not involved in it. So it kind of takes, the story kicks off from there in terms of it becomes a story about friendship. What does friendship really mean when you're 17 or 18? Because mm. a lot of people believe friendship is about who's willing to back me in beef. Mm. Just because he ran away from beef doesn't mean he's not going to go and check in on your mum. Yeah, the guy that's yeah. going to back you in beef, has he ever called your mum when you're not around to see how she's doing? So what's your parameters of friendships? Mm -hmm. So that's what I want us to question in this book for that age group. Is in like, what is friendship? What does it mean? Um, and so that's what that book was about in regards to all their personal journeys. So each character had an in-depth story about um, their motivations, the struggles within their families, linking it to their friendships and everything else that's more of a backstory in terms of what's happening in the area rather than what's on the mainstream, which is normally sort of concentrated on in terms of what we normally see. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I wrote in terms of ambitions of the deprived. And so, yeah, that's probably one of my favorite books out of the three, to be honest. Mm. And then the last one is called My Sister's Pain, which is totally different. It's, um, I was inspired when I went to Holloway Women's Prison to give a talk. And when I was in there, it was not, the inspiration didn't come on what I said. It was the opportunity to sit down and listen to their stories and what mistakes put them in that situation, you know, and um, hearing the stories of domestic abuse and people doing stuff because of boyfriends, husbands, or even self-defense. Um, and all I can think about was the pain these women are suffering, but more importantly, the, the sisterhood that was so strong in here in a place that is normally deemed to be negative. And I'm like, this is powerful because all these women have these attitude of, if you're about to be released, we hope we never see you again in the nicest possible way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? If that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So this sense of sisterhood and then now having two younger sisters, I remember being at my parents' house and I'm seeing my sisters um, thinking, I wonder what their relationship would be like when they become adolescents or when they go into womanhood. And then in that moment, the plot for this new book came in. Um, but the characters would be women, two sisters. Obviously, being a guy, I was worried about the feminists. Like, why is this guy writing a woman's story? Mm -hmm. um, spoke to my editor, who happened to be a woman. And she goes, no, like, genders cross all the time. People are able to tell any stories mm. um, that they want to. And she said something like, if you go back to African history, when they used to be around the campfire, whether the grandma's telling the story or the grandfather's telling the story, 
forget about the storyteller. Did you get the message? Mm. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to write the book, but I just need to make sure I do it justice. And then yeah, I interviewed about 100 women Wicked. to make the book as authentic as possible in regards to like every little thing. I'm like, what do you do in the morning? Like what cream products? Like how do you comb your hair? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? What do you go through your mind when you're on a first date? When you like a guy, when you don't like a guy, how is it going? All of these things. So obviously inserting all these nuggets throughout the book, um, a lot of women would then be saying is, you know what? It's like they had to keep flipping to the front to like reassure themselves, oh, wow, a guy wrote this because wow. that's what I wanted from from the book. And so that's the story of my journey in terms of writing and using that as a tool to inspire more young people and to tell stories um, because another African proverb would say, I'm Ibo, so like our people tend to just use proverbs to send messages. <laughs> so um, <laughs> just to... I'm, end up being my, my dad now where he used to say um, if the if the lion I'm just trying to remember how it goes if the lion doesn't know how to write the story will always favour the hunter mm, I like that so yeah that was a powerful thing so for mm. me that's when I when I heard that I'm like all these things that are happening in my head I have to write them down um, and I guess the piece that I missed was the gatekeepers. And when I say gatekeepers, I mean publishers. Mm -hmm. You know, with my first book, it was about passion. It was about dedicating that to Agnes. So I invested my own money, editors and all of that stuff in that. With my second book, I thought, okay, let me reach out to the people who can get it to the masses. Mm. Because the first one wasn't easy. Like, it's like, you know, being an independent musician, you're selling CDs, I'm selling my books on every speaking gig that I have and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's a hard grind, especially publicity and getting it out there. So I thought, you know what, if I can get some help with a mainstream publisher, this would be great because I think this story would work well. But pretty much like everyone I wrote to or sent them, you know, the first three chapters, you send them a blurb, synopsis and all of these things, wait your six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks and then... I just kept getting all the rejection letters, rejection letters. And then I kept the manuscript in a cupboard for about six months. And I was like, you know what? No, ownership. Mm -hmm. Remember Masterpiece Story mm -hmm. in terms of how they, you know, grinded and just released their own things if nobody else believed in them. So I was like, you know what? You have to make it happen. Even if you have to give away the books mm -hmm. because the message is powerful, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's what I did. I sold my car um, to, to raise up the money to try and make this book better than the first. Because like I said, I was 24 when I did the first. I was rushing. The editing wasn't on point. There was just so many errors. I can look back on that first one and kind of cringe a little mm. bit. So with this one, I was like, no, I need this to be in Waterstone and not look out of place. Mm -hmm. You know, and that costs money, you know. And so professional editors, interior designers, uh, three, four editors in terms of editor one, editor two, and a proofreader. All of these things invest, you know, and so it cost me a lot of money, but it's an investment that I was happy to happy to make, really. I was going to say, what was your process? Was your process different every time you wrote a different book? I mean, I know you just explained some parts of it, but in just terms of the last two books, was there a yeah, so complete, my, simple, a different process? Um, I guess with me, it was procrastination is a big thing. 
for most people. And it was trying to figure out how to overcome that. Because for a lot of writers, that's one of the reasons why people don't start or don't finish. So my thing is, if I give myself a long period of time to write, I allow procrastination to kick in. So what I give myself is a strict mental block in terms of if this is what I want to achieve, then I'm going to do that. So I'll say 12 weeks. There's 12 chapters in this book. So you have to finish each chapter every week. Just get the first draft out. It can not be great, but we work on that in the edit. But the hardest part is just getting it out. And so, and that's what I did with the second book. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew I was writing that second book. My friends didn't know, just my brother. So when people say, oh, Emeka, you coming, coming out? Mm. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Because I still got another three, 4,000 words to write that week to make sure I'm on target. So that was my strict process with the first sort of first two books. And I was able to, to keep up with that. With the third one, it was a little bit more relaxed because at this point I was now sort of teaching full time. And so like I had to stretch out the time to be able to sort of balance work as well as writing. Whereas before I was sort of more floating and being more independent with some of my stuff that I was doing. So I had a lot more time to be able to focus mm -hmm. on the writing, but it was more about the discipline and being able to fight procrastination. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's not easy. Bro. <laughs> um, I mean, I've got last three last questions I ask every guest, unless you guys want to ask anything. Yeah, I've got another. I've, I've got another question. So, we've we've definitely heard about your public speaking, how you got involved in that, yeah. the books, how each one led onto the other, how you've taken um, stuff in your life, whether it was the, the unfortunate death of, Ang of Agnes, yeah. whether it was. Um, the ambitions of people in and around you that you're growing up with or you can see what's going on and yeah. you wanted to kind of think of a way of to reach out and show not just them what they can achieve or what's going on but other people from without from um outside of that realm yeah what's going on and obviously the last one was i think that was a brilliant idea by the way i need to read that i need to read all of them <laughs> yeah but that last one the hundred women all of that and you're writing from you're writing a book kind of well it's a woman's book if that makes sense mm. like yeah, I need to get that back. <laughs> um, I want to get a sense of the now, um, the mecca that works in education. Mm -hmm. So what, because you, you've you've kind of left uni where you was you was doing kind of, you're following the IT pathway. Mm -hmm. That didn't work. You've gone into the kind of youth work and it's grown from there. How have you now got into education Ed and teaching the subject you've taught, you, you are currently teaching? Okay. Um, with education, it became a part of the outcomes within youth work. So being in youth work, part of the problem. So there's three, there's three things we used to concentrate on in youth work. It was one was prevention. How do we stop young people from making these mistakes mm. or being involved in the culture, the negative culture, youth violence and stuff like that. So that's the first part, prevention. Second part is intervention. The ones that are already living that lifestyle. How do we get them out of it through education, through training or whatever it is. And then the third one is suppression, which is through the police. So we try to avoid that, obviously, because we know how that can go in terms of the, the brute force the police can have. So trying to involve more sort of community police work so they can understand um, how to police within our community. Because like a lot of people use anger a lot of the time with the police, which is fair and understandable a lot of the times. But you need to kind of break the barriers down a little bit to say, this is how you should be policing within our communities because we essentially need to work together. We can't push the police to one side even though we might want to, but we have to still work with them. So separating myself as how I used to think of the police, then moving into that professional mindset in terms of, I still understand why the community feels the way they do around the police. But my thing is more, it goes beyond emotion. 
is the means to all fuck up a lot of the times. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes our emotions cloud a lot of things. So I was able to separate that emotion to say, okay, what are the outcomes we can get with um, better policing within the community? So that's the suppression side. So in regards to shifting that within education, one thing that I used to notice, especially within the intervention part, was that we used to get a lot of the young people and the stories were very similar to how they got kicked out of school. So I started looking, looking at my research in terms of young black boys and exclusion rates. And then the statistics I saw at the time like blew, me, blew my head in regards to um, the numbers of young black men that were constantly being kicked out. And then when you look at the percentage of those who have been kicked out, 51% were more likely to end up in prison. And all of these things, or once they're kicked out, they end up in a PRU. When you end up in a PRU, you go for doing 10 GCSEs to doing two or three if you're lucky. All of these type of things. And I'm like, so by the time we get them in the youth club, the intervention work is already hard. Some people are just in too deep, mm. you know? Um, even if they change the mindset, a lot of the times you hear stuff like, people already know me. Unless you move me out of the area, there's like, I need to defend myself. Do you know what mm. I mean? The situations have happened. Some people might have died. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's hard. So the new government, Tory government came in, budget cuts, gone from being full-time to part-time. All of a sudden, it's not sustainable in terms of looking after my daughter, family, being full-time, like just being in youth work. And so I started to think, what can I do next? And so it was an easy transition to go into teaching. So I've now gone into um, being an assistant in sort of pre-units and seeing firsthand these young people that have been kicked out of mainstream education, seeing how they've been treated um, by, I would say, sort of middle-class white women. So we're talking, it's two different cultures a lot of the time in terms of understanding young black boys. You know, I remember a situation where this young student, he did something, or he said something, and then another white boy said, said something similar. What Charlie said, and I'll just use Charlie as a, as a name, became cheeky. But what Toby said was deemed aggressive. Mm. But then Toby sees the inequality in the classroom and he'll challenge it. And they'll be like, <laughs> Charlie just said the same thing. Mm. And then that talking back then becomes get out of the class. Mm. Yeah, I definitely experienced that. Yeah. yeah. And he gets out of the class and guess what he's going to do? He's back against the wall even more now. And he's going to mm. be, maybe now he's going to be a little bit more aggressive. So from there, you're now in the isolation unit within the school. If you're there long enough, consistently enough, then you might get a respite in the in the pru for six weeks. And if that's consistent, then you're kicked out permanently for whatever reason. And so that's the cycle that I was seeing. And I'm like, okay, how would I react to being Mr. Richards or being the male figure, not just the assistant who doesn't have power in the classroom now? Mm. I'm just the guy that's cool with everyone. Oh, just get on with your work type of thing. I wanted to be where she was leading the classroom and making sure we don't have uh, enough of these boys going through the pipeline. So I've seen them at the other end in youth clubs where they've already been kicked out. And I'm like, okay, let me go to the step before they're kicked out mm -hmm. and make an influence there. And again, going back to Mr. Richards and saying, okay, yeah, being somebody influential in this part. And that's how um, I ended up teaching. And then, yeah, just kind of just fell in love with that aspect of not just being academic because I still do the youth work stuff. Mm. When they, when they ask me, oh, how do you manage their behavior and stuff like that? 
I don't manage behavior. I just, I can understand them because I spend time with them. Mm. In my lunchtime, I'm playing table tennis with them. Same way I used to do in the youth club. I'm getting to know them. They're getting to know me. And when I'm now back into that academic realm where I have to teach you now, and there's boundaries, when I bust in joke about the Premier League now, there's boundaries, like you need to listen. They respect that. Mm. And so it, it just became, it just became easy. It became fun for me to be able to engage these young people in this manner. And so that's, and that's how I ended up sort of teaching. And just a word on the, your primary subject you teach. Yeah, so um, it's, it's varied really. I started sort of teaching ICT. Um, and oh, so then, you went back into the IT. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> back in, went full circle into <laughs> yeah. IT. Yeah. Um, but then eventually I, I saw a public service role and I, I found it interesting, when I, especially when I looked at the modules because it covers sort of different areas of life in terms of law, um, police and just getting young people ready in terms of what field of work they might want to go into. So a lot of our students might want to sort of be barristers, lawyers, work in the police, detectives, forensic detectives. So just different areas within uniform public services. But what sort of drew me closer to that was some of sort of the modules that we that we teach within that. And so um, sort of that piqued my interest and then, yeah, just took it from there really. Excellent, man. No, no, not really. I mean, more as a statement, really, is that obviously I met you at university, yeah. and the influence of Mr. Richards, I can like see is written all over you. <laughs> then, in terms of you saying, obviously, you taking a step back from some of the activities or getting involved. In, I mean, I don't want to say we got involved in stuff at uni, but I mean, mm. yeah, I can I can see that in terms yeah. of you potentially kind of being a periphery and like taking a step back and yeah. like, from certain things. So. Um, yeah, no, no, I don't know what to say. Really. <laughs> Sorry, go on, French. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess impressive with the, the books and everything, and we're definitely going to be putting... You yeah. need to give us the link so we can put them definitely. in the videos and yeah, let everyone do. know where to get them. At the moment, as it stands, where can we get those books? So, yeah, everything is on my website, which is basically my full name, um, com. So um, that's E-M-E-K-A-E-G-B-U-O-N-U.com. So pretty much talks if you like speaking stuff anything like that all the books are all on there so everything's mm -hmm. on there and some of sort of the visuals as well that I've sort of created um, are also on there as well Is there any socials that we need to be aware of? Um, yeah like we were having a conversation before we recorded um, I'm not great with social media especially mm. with Twitter I can never keep up with that I've tried so many times but Instagram is emeka underscore bnc so e-m-e-k-a underscore bnc um, I try and do as much as I can on there, to be honest. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Uh, I'm just going to ask you three last questions that we Shoot. tend to ask every guest. Okay. So the first one is, what is the three top values that you bring to your business your or your workplace? Um, three values. For me, I would say um, integrity. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's important because... Without that, it's it's like you're you're up for sale, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? It's like you don't really stand for anything. You have to have that sort of intrinsic integrity about yourself, um, and being honest. Honesty, a lot of people always link it to being honest to other people, whereas honesty, people lie to themselves more than they lie to other people. 
So you have to be honest with yourself. A lot of the times people make ambitions, people make goals that are not realistic. They're, they don't, they know they're not going to do something. You have to be honest with yourself in regards to if you're saying you're going to do something, you have to really want to do it because in the in the back back of your mind, you know that you're not going to do this thing. So you have to be, you have to be honest with yourself. And then if you can't be honest with yourself, then you're going to be dishonest with everybody else, to be honest. Um, and... I would say courage, cool. courage, because I think it's self-explanatory, but you have to take risks. You have to take those steps because some of the great minds in this world wouldn't have achieved what they achieved without taking the risk. Mm. Um, and same with myself, I was able to take the risk, not knowing if I was going to sell any books or not, um, especially in this day and age where everything is competition. You know, you can make an album, and or make even this podcast or whatever creative thing you're doing somebody can just plug in and listen to this while they're doing something else mm -hmm. whereas to sell a book you're buying somebody's time literally because you can't do nothing else but read the book unless you're creating an audiobook or whatever but that's a lot of time somebody's investing in your work so for me it's yeah it's it's something very powerful and so yeah it's definitely courage to be able to to go ahead with your actions or your ambitions that you've written down and that you've spoken to existence and you have to make it happen now. Cool. Next question being, if you had three realistic wishes, what would they be? Three realistic wishes. Um, I guess in, re in relation to my work, I would like a lot more exposure. Mm -hmm. um, for my work and ambitions of the deprived needs to be a film or a series. I've spoke that into existence. Sweet, that's dope. And um, and I know why I say that again, going back to that narrative line that we spoke about. Um, and that's something that I'm sort of been looking into sort of the last two years. Um, but it's a whole different industry in regards to how that operates and stuff. Mm -hmm. So but that's something that I'm definitely sort of you put it out there. So always in the back there. of my, always in the back of my mind. Um, financial stability for the family, because mm -hmm. they always say charity starts at home, begins at home. Mm -hmm. um, I've always felt like I've done a lot for people outside, and sometimes I'm still on that journey of retiring my mom. It hasn't ended, mm -hmm. you know. So it's it's like sometimes when I go home, it's like this woman's worked hard. I need to get there a lot more, a lot quicker so she can sort of enjoy the rest of her days type of thing, relaxing. And so that's always something in the back of your mind, even though you're, again, just pretty much like most people, I guess, everyone's caught up in with what they're doing, their ambitions. And then all these things we've spoken about, especially with young people, can can just be left. Um, so yeah, that's something that's always at the back of my mind to obviously to continue to be on the front line helping, but making sure that I still do what I can to be able to support um, the family here as well as the people that are in Nigeria obviously going back home um, being blessed and privileged to be here um, to be able to you know to live and to earn but seeing how people are struggling in a different way yeah. so again like that kind of finance is not for myself because growing up it's different I remember I used to think oh, I want I want this car I want that but now when I think about money 
a lot of the times I'm cack. You know when they say never calculate money that you haven't received yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you tend to start spending money you haven't received yet. So I tend to do that a lot, but not because. I'm thinking about myself. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you was younger, it's like, oh, that car would be nice and stuff. It's more about how much I can give this cousin because of this business they told me about or, and the, these things. And I don't know, that's just the way it's been. And I just find that satisfaction we've given. And if people around me are nice, then I can indulge in the finer things in life. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like we don't yeah. want to, but I would never want to, if we were brothers or, you know, boys and I went out and I was doing really well and I'm the one that's always paying. That, that doesn't make me feel good. Like mm-hmm. if we were all, if we were both on the same level, do you know what I mean? You can flex yeah, with your yeah. chest a little yeah. bit. Do you know what I mean? And that's what success is. Success yeah. for me is not individual. It's it's family based. Mm-hmm. It's people around me based. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's that. Um, was, was that the question? I think that was three, yeah. That was three. Yeah. Um, the last question being, uh, what three books could you not live without? Oof. I was going to say, should we exclude his three books he's written? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so... The Richest Man in Babylon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Tom Burrell's Brainwashed, because that opened a lot of my thinking. And... I'm torn between Nelson Mandela's Autobiography and Malcolm X. But I guess more linked with, I guess, the African element, I would probably go with Nelson Mandela's autobiography in terms of that the impact it had on me at that time as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those. So, wait, how old were you when you read that? Um, I think this was pretty much just before he died in 2000. And I can't remember. Right around the London Olympics period. Yeah. I think so I've got it there, but I've, like, you know, because such a big book, like, yeah. that's a lazy excuse, by the way. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I've yet to really open it. And yeah. I really when I when I get those it. big books, I always kind of just break it up in my head into four books. I was like, okay, I, when I get to page 200, I'll take a break. Do you know what I mean? Just so I get started, because it can be overwhelming, some of those big books, in it? Okay. So, mm, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, those those would be the three. Like, there's many books, but if I had to pick under pressure, these, these would be yeah. the three that I would pick. Definitely. Yeah, oh, great choices. Thanks. Yeah. Man. Thanks, yeah. thanks, thanks yeah. for joining us, man. Thank Trust you, man. Me, it's man. been it's been insightful. I've enjoyed the conversation, yeah, man. man. It's been good. Thanks, thanks for joining us, um, guys. Remember, fully booked. All your all your regular socials. I think as soon as this video clip ends, it will flash up on the YouTube screen. But yeah, um, check us out YouTube, uh, Facebook, Spotify. Spotify. Now, thanks for putting it out. SoundCloud. Um, be sure iTunes A-cost A-cost <laughs> why am I speaking <laughs> um, be sure to um, check out this interview leave comments leave feedback and yeah let's let's try and push Mecca's um, message out there and we want to try and turn turn that book into a play ambitious re- remind me ambitions ambitions of the deprived of the deprived so if anyone's out there a budding screenwriter <laughs> theatre director maybe Daniel Bailey <laughs> possibly yeah <laughs> let us know uh, nice well done, man. Yeah, well, cheers man, man. Appreciate great it. story <laughs>